Welcome friends, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 10th of April, 2014, and today I'm joined on the line from the UK by Dr. David Healy, an internationally respected psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist, scientist, and author, a professor of psychiatry in Wales, and someone who has published over 150 peer-reviewed articles, over 200 other pieces, and over 20 books, in or 20 books, uh, precisely, including his latest, Pharmageddon, the story of the pharmaceutical companies, how pharmaceutical companies have hijacked healthcare in America. He's also the founder and CEO of Databased Medicine Limited, which operates through its website, risk.org. That's risk, R-X-I-S-K, as in prescription, risk.org, uh, dedicated to making medicines safer through online direct patient reporting of drug effects. Uh, Dr. David Healy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. James, it's good to be here. Excellent. Well, let's start by talking about a website that I believe you were affiliated with, although I'm not exactly sure on the details of that. So perhaps you can tell us about ssristories.org and your affiliation with that website. This is why stories began many, many years ago. I'd have to go back to my archives to check the date. It certainly, it was begun by a number of women in particular during the 1990s who were concerned about uh, the effects of Prozac and other SSRIs when they came in the market. Uh, the key person was a woman called Rosie Maisenberg, but there were a few others involved. There was a woman called Sarah Bostock and a lady called Anne Blake Tracy all of whom have done huge amounts of work in this area by trying to raise the profile of the harms that these drugs can cause. I mean, I don't think any of the three of them thought that drugs couldn't be helpful on occasion, but they did think that the the harms that the drugs could cause were being downplayed. And part of what they did was to troll the media, newspaper reports and things like that, to extract reports where there had been incidents, a range of incidents from people committing suicide to people being violent to people engaging in odd and unusual behaviors. And when the internet, when it became an option to uh, put the stories on the internet, they moved that way also and created uh, SSRI um, stories. And uh, now, that played a very important part, I think, in helping set the climate around the time in 2004 when the issue of clinical trials that had been done on the SSRI uh, antidepressants had begun to show that these drugs could cause children in particular to become violent and possibly suicidal. The availability of SSRI stories for people in the media and others who are concerned about the issues to go and chase up previous stories that had happened probably played a part in helping legitimate the fact that these things could really happen and probably played a part in the fact that we ultimately ended up with warnings uh, about the drugs. Now, one of the key things about SSRI stories, which is probably worth mentioning to you, is it, they now get contributions from all over the world. But when it began first, it was principally in the United States. Um, and one of the reasons why there's been an issue, why the issue of people becoming violent on these drugs uh, appears there is partly because it had been terribly hard to talk about people becoming suicidal. And it is much the same kind of mechanism that leads to people uh, uh, becoming violent. And this was what led Rosie Masonberg to feature these issues where uh, she's, she had, had downplayed to an extent the issues of people uh, um, 
uh, becoming suicidal uh, on the drugs. Rosie died about two years ago now. She had a a tumor, I believe, of the liver. Uh, it certainly spread to her liver. And when she died, uh, those of us who have run risk.org, she said it would be a good idea if we were to incorporate the material from SSRI stories and trying to keep it going because it has been a wonderful resource to people generally, either, as I say, in the media, but also to scientists and more particularly to people generally interested to chase the issues because some of the stories help, the way the, uh, the stories have been told help bring home to people often what the issues are in a way that a much uh, more dry kind of piece wouldn't. Well, that's a good point. There's statistics and then there's personal stories. And uh, I th- I'm sure the latter has more of an effect in shaping people's perception of these uh, these medicines and how they're being used and abused. Um, let's talk. Can I just add to that quick point? I mean, that's a key point. The one that you've raised is just key. It's so, so important. Uh, there's a response from uh, the scientists to say that s- stories like the ones featured on Estherite stories are just that. They're just anecdotal. They don't count for anything. We don't know if because this happened when the person was on the drug, if this really means the drug can cause the issue or not. Um, And there can be a truth in that. We have to bear in mind that's not completely wrong, that view. On the opposite side, uh, uh, the scientists put forward the view that the clinical trials give the real picture as to what a drug can cause, whether it can cause you to become suicidal or change your behavior or homicidal. In point of fact, it's now becoming clearer that just as the stories from people can be wrong, so also the clinical trials can be wrong. Every time an illness and a drug can produce superficially the same picture, like both being depressed can make you suicidal and the pills can make you suicidal, then clinical trials effectively become useless. And if we're going to work out does the drug cause the problem or not, we really are forced to go back to the person who is had the problem and listen closely to the story they give and uh, you know, decide if in this case it's, uh, the drug did cause the problem or not. And I assume that's kind of the raison d'etre for risk.org itself and what you're attempting to do there. It is. Uh, our belief generally, those of us who are behind it, believe that what's happened is that people, when they have any injury uh, on a pill, it's not just uh, the antidepressants, it could be your asthma drugs or heart drugs or drugs to lower cholesterol levels, whatever the drug is and whatever the injury, it needn't be a behavioral injury. It can be a whole range of things that could happen to you from getting heart attacks or muscle cramps and pains or, or finding that your cognitive functions not right. Often the patient themselves is absolutely right when they say this is happening to me. And when you get a few patients saying the same thing, and particularly when you get both patients and doctors uh, saying the same thing, that we really should believe it uh, and work with it. Try to work out, well, okay, if it's causing this problem, we need to let people know that the drug can, in some instances, cause the problem. And all people may want out of it is to know, well, actually, the problem that's happening. I just want to know if it's been caused by the pill. I don't necessarily intend to halt the pill. It's just it's just good to know where this is coming from. But the other thing, of course, is often just simply lowering the dose of the pill may be all it takes to produce a huge improvement in terms of what you know, the problem may be. Are changing to a pill from a different group that may produce that may 
get you to where you want to go without producing the particular problem that the pill you're on has been causing are possibly not using a pill at all. So these are things that um, is the motive force behind risk. It's ultimately, actually, it's not hostile to pills at all in the sense that the single best way to discover a new pill still is to listen closely to people when they're on pills, when they report things that are unusual. And we know that uh, the pharmaceutical industry these days has, it's finding it awfully hard to find new drugs. And part of the reason is they've put this blanket of secrecy over uh, the adverse events that a drug may cause. They've shut down the opportunity for people, our doctors, to say, look, we think while it's a good drug, it can also cause problems for some people. Well, today I want to hone in on that issue of violent behavior that is caused as a, as a side effect of certain drugs. And in, uh, in that regard, of course, SSRIstories.org and uh, SSRIs in general are uh, particularly important. But to make sure that everybody's on the same page, perhaps you can tell us what is an SSRI? Right. The SSRI group of the term SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. And... Um, this is a group of drugs that began, people usually think of it as beginning with Prozac. They think of that as been the first SSRI, and that was made first around 1972. In fact, there have been three or four SSRIs made before that, of which a few had come onto the market in Europe before we ever got to hear about Prozac. Now, the, one of the interesting things is that the older uh, antidepressants we had, drugs that date back to the late 1950s, most of these were also serotonin reuptake uh, inhibiting drugs also. So what you've got in the case of the, the, uh, the SSRI group of drugs is a group of drugs that's closely related to the older uh, antidepressants, but changed so that they're not doing some of the things that the older pills did. That can be a good thing as regards a few of the side effects that the older pills cause, but it also means that in the case of uh, the SSRI group of drugs, what you've got is they're inhibiting serotonin even more potently than the older drugs did. It's a bit like taking a Ferrari through a zone of town that has a very restricted speed limit. You know, you're, you're, you're in the wrong car for that part of town. We don't need the kind of strength that uh, the SSRI group of drugs often have for many of the people. Uh, that we treat and for many of the problems that we treat. And you have, for example, on uh, davidhealy.org, your own website, you have an article on the 25th anniversary of the introduction of Prozac, um, how Prozac has changed psychiatry since it was first approved. And in that, you list uh, the the startling fact that there are probably something between 1,000 to 1,500 extra suicides in the U.S. each year triggered by an antidepressant, an extra 2,000 to 2,500 in Europe, and there are probably between 1,000 and 1,500 extra episodes of violence in the U.S. each year, and an extra 2,000 to 2,500 extra episodes in Europe, which is a startling figure to be pinned down towards one class of, of drugs. Um, how can we make that linkage, and why is that not more well-known amongst the general public? Well, the linkage comes from my access to the clinical trial data that was used to bring drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, and the other drugs in the SSRI group of drugs to the market. 
most doctors generally haven't got to see all of the clinical trial data uh, behind these drugs. One of the unique things that we've got at the moment is that if I was to make a claim about a drug saying that I've got a drug that will be useful treatment for the flu or asthma or whatever, and didn't let people see the data behind my claim, like for instance, if you were asking me on this program now, okay, that's fine that you make this claim, but show me the data. If I refuse to show you the data, it will be the end of my career. If I refuse to show my academic colleagues the data, it will be the end of my career. But the pharmaceutical industry get to hold the data back and they only drip feed out to people the data that they want you to see. Now, I've been a, an expert witness in some legal cases that have involved this group of drugs in the case of people who have become homicidal or become suicidal. And because of that, I've had access to clinical trial data that a lot of other people haven't seen. And once you get to see that data and add it up, that's the data that underpins the estimate that there could be up to one or 2,000 people going on to become suicidal or are possibly homicidal in the United States and the same number in Europe. The reason a lot of other people don't say the same kind of things is they still haven't had access to, to the data. They see me saying these things, uh, 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 but they feel, I guess, that it isn't um, uh, enough to see a person like David Healy say these things for us to believe it. Uh, we have to see the data with our own eyes before we'll be prepared to believe it. Except, of course, if the kinds of things that I say that I've just said to you now, for instance, or that, that you've just read out from uh, uh, the blog posting, if I've got it wrong, I'm going to be sued by the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, so I, th I think people can take from the fact that I haven't been sued and I feel able to say these kind of things, that actually there is data there. They can't see it, but there is data there to, uh, to support these claims. And of course, if they sued you, that would open themselves up to exploratory uh, evidence for the trial that would bring this out into the open, wouldn't it? Well, I guess it would. Um, it's oh well, it would raise. I mean, I think I don't. I mean, I think in a sense, I'm putting uh, the data out there. What it would do, which would be a problem for the companies, is it would raise the profile of the issue. They don't want the profile of the issue raised. Well, there is a blog post on on risk.org. Are prescription drugs to blame for school shootings? Honing in on the issue of the the mass shootings that we've seen so much of since, of course, the the Columbine in incident took uh, headlines in the late 1990s. And in that, you're quoted as saying about 90% of school shooters in North America and Europe were being treated with a prescription drug, which sounds like it could be a startling statistic. On the other hand, let's put on our skeptical hat and say, well, maybe this is just a proportional to the amount of people in the general population who are on some sort of prescription drug. Put that number into perspective for us. How likely is it that 90% of mass shooters would be on some type of prescription medicine? Right. Um, it's not very likely. <clears throat> There's a few things that people uh, need uh, to bear in mind here. One is that it isn't just uh, the antidepressant group of drugs that can cause problems like this. One of the other postings on davidhealy.org a few months ago, perhaps about a year ago, was where we looked at the issue of drugs that can cause people to become suicidal. And at the 
present moment, between the various bits of evidence that are out there on the various different drugs, there are up to 100 drugs that have been linked to people becoming suicidal. So it's more than just the antidepressants. There's a few of the antibiotics, the cholesterol-lowering drugs, and other drugs that can cause problems also. But to come back, there's roughly... 10% of uh, the population in the United States and 10% of uh, the population in Europe who are on these drugs. It's, it's a very, very large number, but it's not large enough so that we end up with a kind of situation where close to 90% of the published reports. Now, one of the problems we've got here is that there may well be episodes of violence that have not been published in uh, the media, for instance, and episodes uh, where uh, we don't have any indication at all whether the person is on an antidepressant or not. Um, so it's hard to be absolutely sure what proportion of the people who are involved in this kind of shooting may be on pills. And of uh, the 90%, the other thing that you need to bear in mind is just because you're on a pill and you go on to an episode of violence, doesn't mean that the pill has caused it. We still need to know a lot more about uh, what happened to you when you went on the pill. If you went on the pill and the pill suited, you were feeling, you know, there was a useful effect from this, it was helping you do your job better and things like that, and you had no real complaints, then if you, for whatever reason, went on to kill a group of your colleagues or... Uh, perhaps the people who are in the same class as you in college and things like that, it's not likely the pill caused uh, the problem. You know, we really do need to look for a fingerprint here, which is, did the person often recently go on the pill? If they did, did they complain to other people that, look, this was making them feel um, more anxious, not less, very agitated, perhaps? Did they begin to say things, look, I'm having unusual thoughts, or I fear I might either try to kill myself or harm others. There's things like this that you can often find if you get a chance to interview the person afterwards. Now, of course, in the case of a lot of the mass shootings, we don't have the, we don't have, uh, the person around afterwards to, to interview, so it can be very hard to tell. The other aspect to it is often afterwards, if they begin to think that they could use the argument about the pills to defend themselves in court, they can tailor the 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 story to suit. So all of these things need to be taken into account. It's not a simple path from just being on the pill to the pill having caused uh, the problem. But what the 90% figure is aimed at trying to get over to people is, given that the pills can cause the problem, it's almost inconceivable that at least some of them haven't been linked to pills. We don't know what the proportion is, but it would be most unlikely, almost impossible that uh, in some instances the pills didn't play a fairly significant role. Well, you raise a number of important points there, one of which being that as uh, just members of the general public, we don't have access to the medical history of a lot of these shooters and we're relying on what is reported to the public. So as a case in point, of course, we're recording this conversation in early April 2014 in the wake of the Fort Hood, Texas shooting that left three, uh, three U.S. servicemen dead and 16 injured. Um, this is being blamed on specialist Ivan Lopez, who has been characterized among some of the more tabloid-leaning uh, British press as being on a cocktail of prescription drugs. And as far as I can tell, the only 
identified drug that he was on was Ambien for insomnia, but he is also on some form of antidepressant. It hasn't been, as far as I know, it hasn't been revealed to the public what uh, antidepressant in particular. What do we as the general public, what can we make of that information? Is there anything more that we can gain from that? Or is it a simply a case of uh, the, the information is uh, completely at the whim of the authorities to release or to withhold? Yeah, unfortunately, it's very difficult to get a clear picture. And even a person like me with a real interest in this finds it hard to get beyond the details that you've just given us there. It's quite, I mean, it's often when a person goes on a pill for the first time or within, you know, during uh, the early period when they're being treated, that they'll be put on a pill like Ambien also, because it's recognized that when you go on an antidepressant first, often it interferes with your sleep and can make you a little bit more nervous. I think the key thing for me is there has to be a suspicion that the pills may have been involved, partly because this man, from the hints that I've had, didn't have a lengthy treatment beforehand. If you've got a person who's so ill that they're likely to go out and kill three other colleagues who behave in a berserk way, they shouldn't be at work. And people who are this ill, you know, they'll have a period of time have been very, very clearly ill. Uh, and then the behavior, the going berserk happens. But there's no hint from uh, the story we had that this was the picture for, uh, for Ivan Lopez. The picture we have is uh, uh, of a person who seems to have been able to, until awfully recently, seemed to be at his job and doing quite well, and who very, very recently went on uh, a cocktail of pills, as you've uh, into, but in actual fact, it looks like it's just two pills, an antidepressant and uh, the sleeping pill that people are often put on when they begin a course of antidepressant first. And on that, he's gone on to behave this way. Now, what we don't have is any other indications as to whether this was out of character for him or not. Does he have a record of doing this kind of thing before and having to be disciplined and things like that? If not, and all the indica I mean, it, the army would often have been quite quick to say these kind of things. If there were factors other than the pills, they'd say, well, look, this man has had a lengthy history of mental illness. But, you know, they haven't said all these kind of things. They haven't given us any indications that the pills aren't involved. So against that background, you cannot say that they are, but we do have to raise the question of these things keep on happening and uh, and why. We've had since the Ivan Lopez case, we've had the college case in Philadelphia where 20 students have been stabbed by one of the other students there. Again, in this case, we just don't know. Now, I think if we if 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 the authorities get around to recognizing that the pills can cause a problem, this is not the first step in the pills being banned. It's much more a case of when you put people on these pills, you alert the person themselves to the fact that things can go wrong. And if you feel unusual, let us know because there are things we can do about this. You alert their parents or other key people who may be in a position to monitor them uh, to the issues because you know, there's the awful things that happen to the children who are killed, but there's also the parents left behind often who are distraught. They, their view is uh, often, you know, uh, remains after the event that I know my son or daughter or whatever, and he wouldn't ever do this thing. This was completely out of character 
for him. And if we'd been warned about the issues uh, beforehand, we'd have been able to monitor him. And if things hadn't been right, you know, we'd have been able to take him along and indicate to uh, the doctor that things weren't going right and perhaps other things needed to be done. Well, I know it's, as always, it's difficult to say um, without having direct access to the medical history of these people, but obviously you have had an interest in, in these types of events and these stories for, for a number of years, and you've examined many of them. Are there any from your perspective that you'd be more willing to assert are more likely to or, or very likely to have been directly caused by the prescriptions that these shooters were on? Well, absolutely. There's a number of legal cases that I've been involved in, and there's a number of clinical cases I've had people who've come to me, and it's been absolutely clear, both in the legal cases and clinical cases, that is, people that I've seen clinically, that the drugs can cause this problem. Uh, like, for instance, I've had 80-year-old men who've been put on these drugs for the first time, and when they've been in hospital, I mean, I think of one 80-year-old man who was in hospital and unable to move, uh, and he was put on an antidepressant because he'd had a stroke, and the Doctors looking after him were concerned that he wasn't rehabilitating quite as quickly as they'd hoped, and they thought that might be because he was depressed. So they put him on an antidepressant. I uh, came to see him. It seemed to me that he didn't seem to be depressed, so we halted the antidepressant. And I came back to see him a few days later, and he said, you know, I'm feeling better now that I'm off that pill. While I was on that pill, uh, there was a man across the ward in a bed over the opposite side of the, of, uh, the ward, whom I didn't know, I'd never met before, but I had impulses to get up and during the night go over and strangle him. Those impulses have all gone since we halted the pill. Now, this is the kind of clinical case that is very, very convincing. Um, it, and when you see this kind of thing again and again, you become aware that the drugs have the potential. They may be, I mean, you know, we could give them to you and you might do wonderfully well on them. We could give them to me and I might have a completely different reaction. And that's the point which people find hard to get their head around, that a drug that can be awfully useful for one person can be the wrong pill for a different person. So there have been clinical cases I've seen that have been utterly convincing. And then there are legal cases that have been quite compelling also and that juries uh, have found very compelling. The most famous case is probably the Tobin case, where a man called Don Shell, who was a tough oil worker in Wyoming, who uh, had been put on Paxil, and he, the doctor put him on it, didn't realize he had a prior history of a very bad response to a, a, a different SSRI, Prozac. Don Shell, 48 hours after he was put on this drug, and he, he wasn't regarded as being uh, depressed. He didn't have a s significant mental illness history. He was just put on it for being anxious. And he was put on the combination of Paxil and Ambien, which is just like uh, Ivan Lopez. And 48 hours after he was put on it, he put three bullets through the head of his wife, three bullets through the head of his daughter, uh, who'd come to visit them, bringing their only grandchild, and three bullets to the head of his grandchild also before killing himself. Now, the jury, when they listened to this, and this was a bunch of average people, not experts. They were, you know, people who owned shops, ran farms, were hired hands, just average people. They came to the verdict that the pill had caused it. 
Well, uh, that's a, a, a horrific story in itself, and I've just lost my train of thought in terms of my uh, questioning because of the, the thinking about the stories like that. But obviously, I mean, the amount of human grief that this causes is uh, is almost incalculable. And I guess that raises an important point that you just uh, addressed, is that when we have conversations like this, there will always be people who respond to it by saying, well, I have uh, taken these types of antidepressants before and they, they helped me or they helped my friend or something like that. You can't be dismissing all of them and all of the use of these. And if, as you just indicated, of course, different people react to these drugs in different ways and drugs that can be useful for some people can be very uh, contraindicated for others. And I think that's an important distinct distinction to make. Just because um, we are criticizing the way that this affects some people does not mean that necessarily we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. But what would you say to the criticism on the other side of that, saying that, well, uh, how do we weigh the risk that certain people will have these types of mass, uh, uh, these violent outbursts and engage in things like mass shootings against the potential good that it brings to other people? Uh, given that the risk is there that people will die as a result of these drugs, how can we in a good conscience give this to, to anyone? Well, I think uh, the tricky uh, issue is this. I think if we, I would feel able to give the pills, and I do use these pills, I would feel able to give the pills in good conscience if I've warned the person beforehand. Uh, now, things can still go wrong, and that's going to be desperate if they do. The thing that I find awfully hard to reconcile or to understand is the people, and there are many of them out there, many doctors, regulators, and others who uh, prove the a use of these drugs which involves the drugs been given with uh, denial going with it that the pills can cause a problem. Uh, there's a lot of people who have been complicit in creating a culture which says that these drugs can only do good, even though the people who've helped create the culture have known about the risks and the harms. Now, I find it very hard uh, to accept that they decide what should happen, you know, that I get a pill or you get a pill or not. I think the choice needs to be yours and mine. Is this the kind of risk that, given the issues that we face, is this the kind of risk that I'm prepared to accept? Now, beyond that, there is a point that you've hinted at, which is, well, whatever about the risk that you and I might be prepared uh, to accept, unlike other problems on a drug, let's say a drug causes your muscles to break down or you to lose your memory, that's a problem for you. In the case of a drug that causes people to become homicidal, that's a problem for the wider community also. There's other people who are going to be injured by my use of uh, the drug. And that's, that's a very tricky issue. But just because the issue is tricky doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Or shouldn't doesn't mean that we should restrict the conversation about it to the experts. My view generally is that the wider public aren't they it isn't the case that they should just be brought in on the issue for the sake of appearances but that actually the wider public generally on these issues is going to be able to help us sort the problems out sort the issues out it's going to have a wisdom that the experts often don't have well, then let's talk about the ultimate solution to this. And I think you've, you've gestured toward that, talking about um, fully informing patients of the risks that come with these types of drugs and informing them of what, to, uh, what warning signs to look for, which would certainly be a vast improvement over what the system that we have now, where a lot of these types of risks are swept under the rug. 
but um, but I think in the in the broader perspective, I would assume, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but I would assume that you would say that generally speaking, um, prescription medicines are overprescribed in our current medical system. If that is the case, what what uh, is the alternative? What can we be looking for that is outside of the pharmaceutical um, conception of how to treat mental illness or other types of illness? Yeah, no, I think you're, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, prescription drugs generally are being used much too widely. Back in the 1950s, 1960s, when we made, we had all of uh, the breakthroughs that have led to the antibiotics, the antidepressants, antihypertensives, drugs for diabetes and a range of other drugs, there was a culture which saw these drugs as being poisons and that the art of Medicine was a wonderful art. It involved trying to achieve a good outcome through the use of a poison. This was a magical thing to be doing. But you only you took care with it and you restricted the use of these drugs to people who really stood to benefit. Or people who were taking these risks were warranted. That if you took the risks involved, you might save a life or a marriage or a career. There was a real sense back then that these were drugs that if you gave them too indiscriminately, you could lose a life, a marriage, or a career because of the use of uh, uh, the pills. And that's what we've lost. We've moved into a culture where these chemicals, which were once viewed as poisons, are now been regarded as fertilizers. And the big thing for doctors to do is not make a judgment call about should I use these pills or not, but they're being an Courage to use as much fertilizer as you can. Only good things can happen from the widespread use of as much fertilizer as we can use. And that's a cultural problem that we've got. I think in part the culture stems from the uh, that people believe the control trials give us better answers about what pills do than than control trials in factually than control trials in fact actually do give. Uh, control trials tend to hypnotize doctors so that they miss the risks and harms that a pill can have. And um, I think we need to partly get back to a world where people don't trust control trials. I mean, they're extraordinarily useful, but where people recognize the limitations of control trials and recognize as well that when a drug comes in the market and control trial has shown that it can be helpful, actually there's a huge amount of things about this drug that we just don't know. Uh, and taking a risk with an unknown quantity like this is fine, but doing what we seem to do increasingly these days, which is to have people on four or five unknown quantities, is almost a recipe for things going wrong. Somehow we need to row back from that. And, you know, as I said, the key thing for me, I mean, there's a lot of things that the politicians can do. They can look at uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the ways that companies get rewarded for bringing drugs on the market. They can look at whether the drugs should be available on prescription only. They can look at the issue about the data from controlled trials and should the companies be forced to hand it over. But there's an awful lot of things I think ultimately we, the people who use these drugs, are going to have to do for ourselves. And that's to get together and change the culture so that people generally are more aware that adverse events can happen and that if, if things are going wrong for me, that people, uh, both the people, person on the pill and the doctor or nurse are possibly the pharmacist helping them is 
better able to trust their own judgment that yes, this pill likely is causing a problem, no matter what the control trials say. Well, I think you're right that the culture itself has to change and we have to be part of that change, but perhaps easier said than done. As uh, you yourself have likened in the past, I believe you've likened the doctor-patient relationship and even the doctor-pharmaceutical representative relationship to a Stockholm sy Syndrome situation. Perhaps you can expand a little bit on that, uh, on that idea and how that applies to the creation of this culture. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1973, in a bank in the middle of the Swedish capital, Stockholm, um, a man with a political cause, uh, I forget his name at the moment, went in and held the people in the bank hostage for a few days, in fact, uh, three to four days, I believe. The army camped uh, outside the bank and the media also camped uh, outside the bank. Everybody was waiting for the siege, well, for the hostage situation to be lifted. When it was, there was a very big surprise. The people who had been held in the bank for days and end came out and were interviewed by the media. They said, uh, well, we actually rather liked the person holding us hostage. We agreed with many of his views. And everybody was very surprised at this because these people have been isolated for a few days as a threat to their life. And they recognized, out of this was born the recognition that if you're isolated, if there's a threat to your life, and in particular if the person holding you, you captive, or your only means of escape is a person who's pleasant and nice to you, you end up with the, uh, the kind of situation where the people being held hostage identify with the person holding them hostage. But that's exactly the situation that happens to all of us when we're ill, or we're at risk of having happened to us if drugs are available on prescription only. What you have is a, the kind of situation where you're isolated by an illness, you're even more isolated if you're on a pill and things begin to go wrong. There's a threat to your life from the illness. It's a bigger threat when you go on treatment and things begin to go wrong on that treatment. That's when you really need the person holding you hostage. Now, doctors don't like to see themselves as people holding others hostage. But in fact, if you can only get the medicines through them, that is what they are. They're increasingly trained to communicate. And they think from that point of view, things are okay. Their communication is all about saying, have a nice day and being pleasant to you and things like that. It's that they aren't trained to listen to you and recognize that when you when they ask, are things okay, and you say yes, then in actual fact, you may be saying no. They're very poorly trained at things like that. So that there's the, the, when you've got people who are ill and on a drug, which they only get on prescription only, you've got the perfect conditions for the development of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, things will be changed if the drugs are available over the counter. One of the curious things about this, I mean, I'm not advocating this because it's going to put me out of business to an extent, but all of the SSRIs like Prozac, Paxil, <clears throat> uh, and Zoloft are antihistamines. <clears throat> and a few of the antihistamines are serotonin reuptake inhibitors also. And you can become more anxious on them and agitated and things like that, just like you can with an SSRI. But people don't, on antihistamines, usually go on to shoot up schools or kill themselves or things like that, partly because if you get a drug over the counter uh, and feel bad on it, you don't continue with it. 
If you get the drug from the doctor and feel bad in it, and he or she says you must continue with it, you often do. You sort of don't want to make him or her unhappy. So if the drugs were over the counter, we'd still use doctors, but we'd go to them and ask them, well, what do you think? And they'd, they'd be in a much more independent kind of position than the one that they're in now. Uh, so, you know, these are all issues that it, it's going to take a lot of wise people to look at and work out what the best way forward here is. But we, there's no medical school that I know of where, where trainee doctors are told about the risks that come from the drugs being available on prescription only. I've never really thought about it that way, but I think you are right. Again, if the uh, the onus of the choice is left in the hands of the people, then they are more likely to respond to what their bodies are telling them. Um, barring, of course, uh, uh, the types of psychological problems that might interfere with that decision-making process. Well, okay, lots of things to consider. I'm sure we could talk about this for many, many hours, but uh, in respecting your time and the time of the audience, perhaps we should draw this to a close. But before we do, we are going to be, we are talking to tens of thousands of people who will be downloading this in the aggregate all around the world, and I'm sure just statistically, a certain percentage of them will either be on these types of uh, prescription medicines or perhaps thinking about going on them and are very concerned and, and anxious about that decision listening to a conversation like this. What would you tell people in that situation about their situation and what uh, resources they should be turning to to make an informed decision about this? One of the things they can turn to is risk.org. They can go and have a look at the data there. One of the other key things, I mean, the key thing is to find a doctor or a patient or a nurse who, uh, not a patient, doctor or pharmacist or nurse or perhaps other people who are on the pill who can listen. Uh, you don't want to do anything precipitate like halt the pills instantly because withdrawing from the pills can bring its own risks. It may be a reasonable option to think about trying to get off the pills, but this is one that needs to be done reasonably carefully, um, it doesn't have to be with your doctor if you've got a non-listening doctor, if they refuse to believe the pills could cause a problem and you have good grounds to think that they may be causing you a problem. But it needs to be done with care. One of the options is to change doctor, perhaps, if you don't find that you've got a person who is particularly sympathetic to you. But at the end of the day, if you're on the pills and you feel they're working well for you, there's a good chance they probably are. If you're on the pills and they're not working well for you, that you're a little bit unhappy, you've been trying to raise your concerns about the pills, then there's a good chance that you're right. And the issue here is then trying to find the most constructive way forward, which ideally is going to be with at least one more person that understands where you're at, be it a nurse or a pharmacist uh, or a doctor. All right. Well, a very, very interesting conversation. So I hope people will take a look at davidhealy.org, at risk.org, at ssristories.org. Of course, all of these will be linked up in the show notes for this interview so that they can find out more about yourself and your work and uh, perhaps your latest book as well, Farmageddon. We should mention that as well. All right. Uh, again, a very interesting conversation. Dr. Healy, thank you very much for your time today. James, thanks a lot. It was great to talk. <laughs>